Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The hidden mind of God. The hidden mind of God. Oh Lord, as I speak this word tonight, would you come in power? I need revival. My brothers and sisters need revival. We need to We need to see what's on your mind. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. The mind of God is hidden from us usually because our mind is on something else. The mind of God is hidden from us usually because our mind is on something else. Our mind is on the thing that is next in our life. The next crisis, the next responsibility, the next pleasure, the next activity. Our mind is on that. That's not what God's mind is on. And so the task is to go to the scripture and find out what God's mind is on. And then come into agreement with God by placing my mind on what his mind is on. The normal pattern is to try to convince God to put his mind on what's on my mind. God, I need this. God, I need that. God, would you bless here? God, would you do this? Come on, you're my servant. Do what I ask you to do. Rub the genie. Well, God is not my servant, and God is not a genie. One brother used to always say to me, God is not a tame wolf. God is not a tame wolf. You don't lead him around by a leash. You don't walk God. And so God's mind is hidden from us. Because we think 
God's mind should be on what our mind is on. Always when I begin to struggle with this issue, I'm led to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they sequentially lay out what happened in the life of Jesus. But you come to John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. John is now an old man. And he wants to teach us the deep things of the Spirit. And so we begin in John, the second chapter. On the third day, a wedding took place. On the third day, a wedding took place? Third day from what? We know it could not be, if you look at this passage, it almost seems it's the third day from Jesus being recognized as the Messiah by John the Baptist. We know that can't be true because historically we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. So what's this three-day business about? John does this. It drives me crazy. Because John doesn't talk like a normal man talks. He talks like Jesus talks. You know, when you're around someone a long time, they begin to look like you, and you begin to look like them. It's been fun for me to watch how Kurt and Faye have begun to look a little like each other. They kind of walk the same walk. Yeah, Chris and Robin, you look alike too. It's fun to watch as couples begin to look like, like each other and they begin to talk like each other. Well, that's true with Jesus too. If you've been around Jesus long enough, you'll begin to look like Jesus. You'll begin to talk like Jesus. Well, John always looks and talks and acts like Jesus. So what's this third day about? Well, there's only one clear answer I have. The third day was when Jesus Christ arose from the grave. So I know right now ahead of time that in this story, I need to begin to look for something hidden by the Spirit that God has His mind on about the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to read this story, but in the back of my mind, I'm going to be saying resurrection. Resurrection. Can you all say that? Resurrection. Resurrection. Now watch. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Well, what disciples? He hadn't chosen his disciples yet. You, you find earlier that a few of the men who had followed John had followed Jesus and said, where are you living? And Jesus said, well, come on home and see. So these disciples are really not disciples yet. They're just testing the water. They're putting their toe in to see if this is a man they want to be associated with. But John is being, 
how shall I describe it, overly positive about the flesh. The truth is, John had not decided to follow Jesus yet. But they're his disciples here. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, or you could appropriately translate this, Mother dear, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Well, I read that and I began to pray on that. I began to meditate on that. It's always been a thorn in my side. I could never figure out what it meant. Mother dear, well, I understand that because I used to talk to my mother that way. She'd want something that I didn't want. And as an adult, I would say to her, Mother, Mother, you can almost hear John saying it, or Jesus saying it, Mother, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Well, what time is Jesus talking about? It seems obvious to me now. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. His time for crucifixion has not yet come. Jesus has his mind on one thing and only one thing, and that is his coming crucifixion. It's consuming him. It's never out of his eyesight. He is not there to be a good guy. He's not there to win disciples. He's not there to win a popularity contest. He's not even there to heal all the sick. He's there to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sin of the world. That's what's on God's mind. I'll give you another passage of Scripture. This is again Jesus speaking in Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Oh, that's a surprise, isn't it? Jesus is asked, what are you doing here, Jesus? I've come to bring fire on the earth. Now, lest you misunderstand, he continues, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. And if you look up the scriptures concerning that baptism, it's clear. Baptizo, the Greek word, is to be put under. When you would wash hands, you would baptizo them. You would put them under the water. He's speaking here about putting himself in the grave. Baptizo, under the ground. So on Jesus' mind, in Jesus' heart, he's saying, I came to this earth to bring fire. I came to burn up this wicked place. I came to destroy this earth. I did not come because I love this wickedness. I came for righteousness. I came to burn this place. 
I didn't come to accommodate myself to it. I didn't come to build myself a little kingdom here in Israel. He's saying, I came to burn this place. Now, if you don't understand that that's God's heart, you don't know how to function in today's culture. If you were to ask Jesus today, what do you want with the earth? He would say, to burn it. That's what he wants, to burn it. He wants the fires of hell to be lit on this earth. He wants this thing finished. He doesn't want this pain and suffering to continue. His heart is to end this thing. So if you want to get your mind on where God's mind is, you're going to have to get your mind on the destruction of this earth. Now that changes our priorities a little bit, doesn't it? You know, my human flesh says, look, how can I create enough to pass down to my children a heritage so that they can live happily after me? How can I leave the earth a better place having been born into it? How can I make a contribution? How can I improve the quality of life for my brothers and sisters? What's on Jesus' mind? I want to burn the place. There is no redeeming this place. The scriptures say he's going to change this earth like dirty underwear. He's going to throw it away. He's going to burn it. Now the only thing that's stopping him or preventing him is the great compassion of his heart. So if you please, if you want to understand the mind of God, he's torn. He's torn between righteous judgment on this earth, desiring to end this cancer that has invaded the universe. He wants to end this thing. But on the other side, his heart is so compassionate and so merciful and so kind that he doesn't want any to be lost. He wants to save all who will be saved, who will enter into the ark of safety. So God's mind is not on what kind of car he's going to drive or what kind of house he's going to live in. His mind is not on what he's going to eat tomorrow and what he's going to wear. His mind is single-focused. I want to destroy this earth. I want to burn this earth. God is against this earth. But his heart is for its people. So if you want to get into God's mind, you're going to have to be against this earth and for its people. To redeem them. This, this Luke passage, he goes further. Do you think, in verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He's saying, look, you're going to have to make a decision. 
I'm not here to have a happy camp place on earth. I'm here to burn this earth. And some of you are going to make the decision to follow Jesus. That's what he wants. But he's saying that his message will bring a division even in the most intimate family relationships. And that division will be over burning the earth versus building your kingdom on the earth. That's the dividing line. How do you stack up tonight? Is the focus of your heart on what you can build in this earth? Or is the focus of your life on the destruction of this earth and the sure return of Jesus Christ in mercy and power and glory? You have to make that decision. Either you get with the mind of God or you get with the mind of the world. Let's continue this story. The wine has gone, and Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Oh, I can hear it right now. Jesus' mother doesn't have the faintest clue about what Jesus is talking about. And by now, Jesus is probably the head of the household for his mother. Joseph has probably died. And so now, how many times has Jesus' mother said something to Jesus, he has replied in a manner that seems utterly out of sync with what she has said. She doesn't understand anything that he said, but she knows one thing. Just do what he tells you to do and it'll work out all right. Just do what he tells you to do and it'll work out all right. You don't have to understand it. You just have to do it. Oh, how many times I have walked in this. I the Spirit of God begins to tell me things, and I don't have any understanding of what He's saying to me. And I'll finally just say, Lord, just tell me what to do. And it's almost as though He stops, catches Himself, and said, okay, do this. Now my prayer is, oh God, let me grow up so that I can understand Your mind. Your ways are so different than my ways. The way you think is so different than the way I think. You can't even explain this to me. I'm not up to understanding. Just tell me what to do. I used to love to go to God with why questions. Why this? Why that? You know what I discovered? Usually my why questions were really wine questions. <laughs> whining about this and whining about that rebellion against God because my mind was on that earthly kingdom and not on the burning of the earth and the establishment of God's kingdom. I've learned now, I usually don't ask God why questions. I usually ask God what questions and when questions. What do you want me to do and when do you want me to do it? And how do you want me to do it? 
and I try to leave the why questions alone. So now Jesus' mother is saying, look, I don't have a clue about what Jesus is saying. Just do what he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each held from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to a servant, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now we've got water jars filled over 150 gallons of water for a little local party. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till last. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, this whole story is so filled with, with significant meaning. Let's take it apart a little more. Jesus is looking forward in his heart to the crucifixion because he knew that at the crucifixion he would be creating enough wine for all of the world. Jesus' mother was concerned about enough wine for the party. Yes. Jesus' heart was on enough wine for the world. So they thought they had gotten a great abundance of wine with 150 gallons. 150 gallons of wine would not have allowed blood for you and me. So Jesus' heart was on this crucifixion where there would be adequate wine for everyone in the world to be washed and cleansed, to be made whole. It says, this was the first of his miraculous signs. Do you understand what a sign is? Do you know what a sign is? A stop sign. It gives you information about something that's ahead. A road sign points you in the direction. Don't get caught thinking that this road sign has any meaning in itself. This is a sign. That is, it's a, it's a marker that points us ahead to something much greater than itself. So it's pointing from 150 gallons of wine ahead to the cross where there would be enough wine for the whole world. The glory of Jesus, it says, this is the first of his miraculous signs. He thus revealed his glory. The glory was the resurrection from the dead. That's the glory of God. So what we have here is a, a symbolic opening of an understanding for us that when we run out of wine and we come to Jesus... 
there is enough wine for everyone in the world. And so tonight, if in your heart you have any sense of lack, I'd have to ask you, what's your mind on? Is your mind on your lack? And are you saying to Jesus, you know, I, all I need here is $500. You know, all I need here, Jesus, is this little physical healing. All I need here, Jesus, is just a new job. All I need here is Jesus, I just need some peace in my family. These are little things. These are the Cana miracle. And if Jesus does that miracle for you, know that he's pointing forward to that cross where there is everything supplied that we could possibly need. There is no reason for lack in the kingdom of God. The broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood were adequate for everything for us. The reason we begin to feel like we don't have enough is because we're focused on the earth. Our mind is not where God's mind is. God's mind is on destroying the earth. He's going to change out the earth like a garment. He's going to roll it up and he's going to burn it. He's going to dress a new earth in glory and splendor. Do you think the God of the universe who can change an earth out like you would change a light bulb out? You think that God can't take care of what's needed in your heart? Do you think there's any reason for a sense of emptiness? Is there any reason for a sense of of despair in our hearts when God can change out the earth like a light bulb? The question is, is our mind focused where God's mind is? Or is our mind focused on the burned out light bulb? We serve an awesome God. Majesty and power, glory and splendor. Awesome. So I would ask one more question tonight. Where is God's mind tonight? Where is God's mind tonight? Well, immediately I can answer the question because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God's mind tonight is on burning the earth. Hasn't been done yet. God's mind is on burning this earth and everything created by the human flesh. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he also wants to get rid of this flesh tent that I'm in. He has something else on his mind. And so as we come to him understanding that his heart is to destroy the earth. And on the other side to understand that he is the God who created enough wine at the cross to cleanse and wash and satisfy us all then specifically, what is God asking us to do? I want to share that with you tonight quickly out of Revelation, the third chapter. He speaks to the last end day church, the end time church. 
He speaks to the Church of America. These are the words of the Amen. Verse 14 in Laodicea. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize you're wretched and pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And so now he's going to tell us specifically the three items that he has on his heart for us. Now as I read these, there's a great disappointment that wells up in my heart. I would wish that he would say, what I want first of all for you is to do a great deal of good work in the earth. Wouldn't that fit us as Americans in our entrepreneurial go-go age? But that's not on God's mind. I said to Jan as we left the little Brockway church, the first church I pastored, we could all comfortably fit in that little church. I said to Jan, I haven't accomplished a thing for God. I've wasted my years. This was 35 years ago I was there. I've wasted my years. My daughter Heidi spoke up. She said, Dad, what you're saying isn't true. It's just taken God this long to get you into shape so he could use you. I said, thank you, Heidi. It's hard to hear myself speaking back to me. She laughed. She said, Dad, I'm serious. I've observed your life for years. And I've watched God thrust you back into the fire time after time. He pulls you out and he hammers on you with a hammer. And then he shoves you back in the fire again. I've watched God do that to you. And now he started on me. You haven't wasted one moment for eternity, Dad. It all will count. So listen now to what's on God's mind. Verse 18, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. That's not talking about a prosperity, name it and claim it, gospel. This is speaking about stepping forward into the fire and being refined like gold. We step into the fire when we obey the Lord Jesus Christ and we stop providing for ourselves, and we begin to let God provide for us. Where we have given God our time, our energy, and our money, and we now say, Lord God, you provide for me, and I will trust in you. I will do what you tell me to do. I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll say what you tell me to say. I trust you. Now, this is the biggest question that we can face. Will you trust God? 
on Jesus' mind was, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you have doubts tonight in your heart? It's well that you pay attention to your doubts. Because they tell you where you need to focus more time with Jesus. Jesus had some doubts in his heart. He had some doubts about when he came back, whether there'd be anybody exercising faith and believing in him. And his fear was he'd come back and have to judge and cast everybody into the lake of fire. And he didn't want to do that. And as he prayed through with his father at the cross, he said, I don't want to die on this cross. He didn't want to die because he, bottom line, wasn't sure it would be worthwhile. In his human side, with the divinity hidden, Jesus did not know. His disciples had all deserted him. He stood alone. Peter denied him. They all ran. Jesus is saying, is there going to be anybody with faith on the earth? Will anybody step forward and walk out this walk as I've done through these last three years? Will anybody want to be like me? Will they leave their sin? Will they allow the blood to break the bondages Satan has put upon them? Will they walk free? This is the biggest issue right now in God's heart. Who will walk free in the power of the blood? And who will go back to their sin and walk in wickedness and end up burning as he comes to judge the earth? He doesn't want any of you to burn. He wants you to step out and by faith trust him. The most difficult thing for an American to do is to trust God. We've been taught to be self-reliant. We've been taught to provide for ourselves. We've been taught to trust no one. Trust yourself. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And the Lord God of heaven comes and he says, if it's going to be, it's up to me, not you. And so on, on the heart of Jesus tonight, he's carefully watching you. He's watching for demonstrations of faith on your part. He is pleased when you step into faith, when you trust him, when you lay it all down and you say, Jesus, live or die. I trust you. Now, what else is he watching for? White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. White clothes to wear. We're told in another part of Revelation that the white clothes that he's referring to are the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, on God's heart is a hungry desire to see concrete steps of obedience on the part of God's people. That's why he told the parable where he 
the dad went and, and called two sons to go out and work in the vineyard. And one said, oh, I'll go. I'll go. The other one said, I'm not going. What do you mean? Let the servants take care of that. But the one who said, I'll go, never went. But the son who said, now let the servants, I'm not going to go. His conscience began to pierce his heart. And he got up and went to the field and began to work. Now, which one did the will of the father? The one who said, I'll go, or the one who went? Jesus is not much interested in what you and I have to say. He's interested in what we do. Words are cheap. Actions. That's what counts. When you leave this house tonight, God is going to be watching you to see where your feet take you and what your actions are. He wants to know if your actions are in league with the world or if your actions are in line with the world burning and the kingdom of God being established. Now the third area is salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All through scripture, the salve represents the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has to come so that we can understand the word, so that we can understand what Jesus is saying to us, so that our hearts can be convicted by the word that's spoken. Faith comes by hearing. But if the Holy Spirit is not operational in that, you can't hear. And the seed will fall on on the stony ground. Be stolen away by the devil. So the Lord is very interested in watching who is it that is hungry for the Holy Ghost. Who is it that is crying out, Holy Spirit, come teach me about Jesus. The whole work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Jesus Christ. So you can't be interested in Jesus and disinterested in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. He falls on us. I was so filled with joy as I stood in this little church in Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, where the Spirit of God first came upon me to call me to ministry. And I went and I sat in our family pew. And as I sat there, the Holy Spirit fell on me again. The same as he had that day many years ago. Reconfirming in my heart the call of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit we need to bring conviction, to issue his call, to draw us to Jesus, to lift Jesus up before us so that we see a clear vision of who Jesus Christ is. But now I want you to get the overall picture, please. Jesus is saying, look, I want a people who are willing to step out and risk everything for me. I want a people, I want a people who will walk by faith and not by sight. I want a people who in their behavior will look like me, who will lay aside the world, 
the passions of the world, the anger, the bitterness, the judgment, the accusations. Lay aside everything of the, of the flesh and who will constantly cry out for the Holy Spirit. Now I pray in the description I've just given you, you see an image or a picture of the National Prayer Chapel. That's what the National Prayer Chapel is about. Urging you to step out by faith and walk in Jesus, trusting Him, turning away from the wickedness of your heart, and seeking after the Holy Spirit. That's the whole combined package of where God's heart is today. God's not asking us to start some great program or some great project. He'll manage the projects. He'll start the programs. He'll provide the funding. He'll give the direction. Will we walk by faith? Will we trust Him without grumbling like the children of Israel? Will we trust Him without murmuring and being bitter with Him, without accusing Him? Will we just flat out trust Him and keep our attention on walking righteous before God and seeking and hungering after the presence of the Holy Ghost? I've sometimes wondered, why did the Holy Spirit come so easily a few years ago and so hard today? Why did God pour himself out for Oral Roberts and begin to just heal everybody in his congregation? Today he won't do it. I think the answer's clear. Men like Oral Roberts took the power of the Holy Spirit that was real and prostituted it for their own gain. We're at the end of time. This time, he's not going to pour out the Holy Spirit until we're walking by faith and until the righteous acts are in place and he can trust us with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because he doesn't want that power prostituted again. He doesn't want man to build his kingdom. He wants to make certain that we're walking in the will of the Spirit, that we're walking in the way of Jesus Christ. So where's your mind tonight? What have you been thinking about all day? Have you been complaining to Jesus that you're out of wine? Have you been trying to get him to move in some little way to make your life a little bit more comfortable? Or has your mind been where God's mind is? This world is going to burn. Now walk by faith, step out, act like a Christian, and walk hungering after the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different way of walking before Jesus Christ. I've got my own ideas about how things should work. Why shouldn't God come and consult me a little bit? God, you know I need this job. You know I need this car. You know I need this. So God, come on and ease up on me a little bit here. You know I really love you. So why does it have to be so tough, God? You know I'm trying. 
Now, God's not a sentimental slob. God doesn't walk that way. He's right on track. He's right on focus. I'm going to burn this earth. Now, I'm going to save as many as I can before it is absolutely evident that no one else can be saved. I'm going to save as many as I can. Now, if you want to cooperate me in what I, with me in what I'm doing, step out by faith and follow me. Trust me. Let your acts be righteous before me. Don't play games with me. Don't slip and slide. Don't be double-minded. Don't play with sin. Make straight paths. And hunger for the Holy Spirit. Hunger for the Holy Spirit. Pray for hunger for the Holy Ghost. I get on my face and I cry out to the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm hungry for your Holy Spirit, but I'm not nearly hungry enough. I know you cannot be lifted up in my eyes if the Holy Spirit is not poured out in power. I need a new revelation of your glory, Jesus. Pour out your Holy Spirit for me. Oh, the dancing of the world before our eyes is an illusion. The entertainment of the world is an illusion. On that great Titanic, as they plowed their way through that cold, icy water, the bands were playing, and the dance and the food were flowing, the wine was flowing, It was an unsinkable ship. It had been in the newspapers, put up right into God's face. This is unsinkable. So it plowed with arrogance into that iceberg and ripped the side of that ship open like a can opener, opening a can, and sunk with a loss of hundreds of lives. That's what this earth is doing right now. America is a Titanic. And we're about to hit an iceberg and rip the side of the ship out. The ship of state is not going to sail through smooth waters in its arrogant humanism and its rebellion against God. And we're the passengers on this ship. We need to be on our face before God, hungering, searching. Holy Spirit, help me to talk about this. I don't know how to speak about it. Mighty God, I want to tell you what happens to me. It's almost as though I'll have a a respite. It's as though things suddenly begin to be very calm in my inner life. And as that occurs, I begin to look to heaven. And I begin to say, Lord, I don't trust this calm that's in my life. Because I'm not experiencing the power of the gospel. 
so I know this is a false peace. Would you begin to well up in me once more? Would you begin to well up in me with intense hunger and desire that will disturb my inner life? And as an act of God's grace, the bubbling will begin to happen in my inner being as a hunger begins to build and grow that begins to drive me into the scriptures and drive me into the prayer closet. Now, some of you in this house have so stopped up the spring of your inner life with the world that you've not experienced this inner driving hunger, this welling up inside of you. I urge you tonight, begin to cry out to God and ask that he release the springs of the Holy Spirit in your belly to begin to rise up and flow in your life to cause you to hunger after these three things that I've outlined from the book of Revelation. That you will despise your wickedness. That you will hunger after righteousness. That you will despise the emptiness of your soul and hunger after the Holy Ghost. And don't let anybody turn you aside. Don't let anyone try to tell you, oh, don't be so radical. Don't keep talking about Jesus. I urge you, talk about Jesus everywhere you go, with everyone you see. Talk to them about Jesus. And those sin bondages that hold you, cry out to the Lord for Him to well up that bubbling power of the Holy Spirit from inside your belly that will cause you to hate your sin and turn against it. Don't be satisfied with cheap guilt. Don't be satisfied with cheap guilt. Don't be satisfied with beating yourself up and saying, Oh, how bad I am. That's just cheap guilt. Cry to the Holy Spirit that He will well up in your heart and cause you to hate that sin and cause you to go into the prayer closet and break it in the name of Jesus by the blood of the cross. See, if that well is so full of the world and so packed down with the darkness of the world, and the work of the Holy Spirit it can't happen in your life. And if the Holy Spirit can't get through to you, you'll be lost. That Holy Spirit has to have freedom to rise up in your spirit and cause you to hunger for Jesus. Tonight is your is your is your belly open? Is there a rising of the Spirit inside of you? Or is there a hard, cold edge? Because you've been so filled with the world. When was the last time you experienced the moving of the Holy Spirit in your inner being, causing you to cry out, Jesus, 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 I must have you, my Lord. Nothing else is worthwhile. I must have you, Jesus. Oh, I pray for you tonight that you will have them, the hidden mind of God. That you will understand the hidden mind of God. That you will take your eyes off this world and put your eyes on Jesus. 
that you will search after him and hunger after him and not ask him to come and fix the little wine problem. He'll take care of the little wine problem if you'll hunger after him and search after him. Hunger after God. Young people, hunger after the Holy Spirit. Hunger after God. Search after him. It's your only salvation. Oh Lord, I'm so hungry for you. Oh, Holy Spirit, take away everything that would block the flowing power of your presence to reveal Jesus in this fellowship. Make plain before us the cross. Make plain before us the tomb, empty with a resurrected Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling.